at SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. So we've obviously been watching now for a couple of days the inquiry, inquest inquiry on Neil Eggert's death and harrowing accounts coming through from witnesses. And I, I just couldn't um, continue watching. And, and it, it, you obviously want to watch. But just witnessing what um, what it is that the witnesses have said around the accounts surrounding the death has been quite difficult to, to, to deal with in a country as, as this where we are sitting here 25 years later. We really haven't dealt with some of the atrocities that we in this country have to deal with. Lucien van der Velt is a PhD professor of economics and industrial sociology and also a director of Neil Eggert Labor Studies Unit at NLNALSA. He joins now, he joins me now on the line just to discuss the man that was Neil Eggert, Dr. Neil Eggert. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us and welcome to the show. Hi, Pamela. Thanks very much for having me here. I suppose what we want to do with this feature is to not only just frame him in in his death, but look at the life that he led and who he was. He wasn't born in South Africa, and it was for me quite interesting that this was a man who devoted so much of his very very small life, in fact, because he only died at 28, um, to a country that he wasn't born in. Well, I think what's really remarkable about people like Neil is that they show the ability of people to stand up bravely against terrible things and to have a sense that suffering, no matter where it happens in the world, is the responsibility of all of us. Mm. We all need to stand up and be counted. So people talk about how he may have been affected as a young doctor. He was working in rural uh, Transkei hospitals there. He had witnessed firsthand what it was like to be black and poor. And that kind of was the time when when he was awakened and he was sort of aware of what is happening in the country. Do we know of any other count that could have been as a, the result of why he became so involved? I think part of what's also happening in the 70s is quite a big awakening among a lot of young people, white, black, colored, Indian, about the need to stand up. So worldwide, there's the process of 1968, where a lot of people decide to try to make the world a better place. And a lot of that's driven by the youth. So the context in which somebody like Neil was active, there were a lot of people throwing themselves into a new trade union movement. And that new trade union movement gave birth to most of the unions we have today and would go on to play a massive role against apartheid. So they saw the problem not just as one of racial discrimination, but of a capitalist system which exploited many people and benefited uh, a few people at the expense of vast numbers of people who backbreaking labor built the wealth of the country isn't but, it in- um, didn't benefit them. Isn't it interesting that he saw himself as somebody who who needed to do the work on the ground of helping the workers and so on, and in fact was also, he didn't want to get into trouble. He was seeking not to be in trouble because he knew that would stop uh, his contribution to to the work he was doing. Well, the thing is the apartheid state, I mean, it's very easy in retrospect for people to forget what that state was like, but it was an extremely repressive state. It censored newspapers, it banned people from teaching in universities, it banned people from public life. So a lot of people like Neil thought um, it's important to build trade unions, but we also need to avoid bringing down the wrath of the state. It was not a state that was worried about things like due process or bad publicity. So in the context for somebody like Neil there, um, you know, there were these regular roundups of activists 
thousands and thousands of people, in the 80s, tens of thousands of people, and he was caught up in one of those suites. And the state was convinced there were vast conspiracies, so they were willing to do whatever it took to prove that. And to punish those they saw as, as behind this onslaught, this total onslaught. The difficulty for me is listening to the testimonies over the past couple of days where we have his uh, his partner who was also in that group as that you've just mentioned now um who who very openly and candidly talks about how because of the way the state managed um people that they had rounded up it's so difficult to remember what happened when and the interrogation strategies of of planting a seed in your mind, telling you you're lying and how confused all of those facts become with when you are at the center of that interrogation. They were very skilled at what they did. I mean, the state devoted vast amounts of resources to breaking people, to uh, digging holes in your heart and breaking your mind. So... The aim was partly to get more people to either turn you to their side or to use you as an object lesson on what happens if you stand up or to for you to confess and incriminate yet other people. So their logic was one that was fundamentally undemocratic. They were not interested in, in disagreement. They were interested in crushing it. The, the significance of him being white and being the first mm. person to die um, uh, uh, you know, in, in police custody, just t- talk us through that. Well, I think, I think first, obviously, he's not the first white person to have been arrested for anti-apartheid activities. But as a state from the 1960s, so you had people like Brown Fisher in the 60s who was jailed for Communist Party activity and so forth. But as the state became more and more ruthless in the 60s and 70s, it created a whole category of people who were arrested but without any charge. No rights to lawyers, no rights to appear in court, no deadline on when you'll be released. And inevitably, um, the logic of that was people who got caught up would be crushed. So although white people might have been better treated, for example, they were, if you were charged, you were not sent to Robben Island, but to uh, Pretoria Central. Whites like him who rebelled against the state were also seen as particularly bad. They were seen as real traitors. You know, the apartheid state expected uh, a lot of black people to fight it. But when whites broke over that line... That was seen as something particularly heinous. One of the things that stood out for me was how, you know, you have the state and you have this organ that you've got to deal with. But the reality also is that you have your own community. And Mm. and there were white South Africans, even amongst them, their friends, family friends, who, who kind of thought, well, what, you know, he deserved it. What was he doing there in the first place? Oh, I don't think we should have any illusions that, um, the whites who stood up against apartheid. They were a, a very brave group, but they were a minority. A lot of people just get on with their day-to-day life. Uh, most people under apartheid were not that active, whether black or white. And people who stuck their neck out, a lot of people might support them, but not say anything, and other people would be more likely to have a law and law order argument. One thing I should just mention here, though, was the symbolic role of somebody like Neil in dying in that way as part of a non-racial trade union movement, he became a very Mm. powerful symbol. Mm. You know, there was a a general strike to commemorate uh, his death. Um, So those were also significant in creating the democracy we got, that you could have a non-racial movement rather than a simple, as the apartheid state wished it, um, black-on-white conflict. As the UDF, uh, the United Democratic Front in the 80s, used to say, apartheid divides, UDF unites. So the idea symbolically was also very important 
break down that lager a bit and to show there was something different and better possible. Oh gosh, you make such an important point. I mean, when you just look looking back and thinking back at the number of people that came out uh, for his death, I, I mean, I don't know whether those numbers are accurate, but people talk of 15,000 people or so on who, who came out in support and, and to show solidarity with the family and, and loved ones mm, and so on. That was just at the funeral. I yep. mean, the, 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 the general strike got 100,000 people and it was the first really political general strike of the 1980s. I mean, it wasn't a whole day, but this was the biggest sort of general strike since 76, when there'd been mass stayaways. So, interesting, I think, to think of people standing up against injustice, saying a new South Africa is possible, and saying that it doesn't, what matters is what you stand for, not who you are. The choices you make, that's what really counts. To be a real human being is to do the right thing. It is said that uh, Oscar Mpeta, um, who was mm. one of the leaders, uh, said about Neil that he was a man of a people, and that being the greatest compliment you could ever pay an activist. I, th- I think, you know, it's very important to remember the legacy that people like him left. This was somebody from, you know, a fairly well-off background. He'd studied at a private school here in Makanda or Grahamstown called Kingswood, a very wonderful school, but, you know, fairly uh, top-level school. He had become a doctor, and there were choices he made to go to the people, whereas he could have just had a consulting room in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we as the Neil Agate Labor Studies Unit are trying to carry forward in a very modest way, to see ways that uh, intellectuals can work with the labor movement and other popular movements to uh, help create a better society. And I think he provides that example. So did people like Nelson Mandela, who is from you know, a fairly well-off background, Brown Fisher and others. So the most important thing, and as you just said, what you guys do is to also, I suppose, highlight the ripple effects of this mm, kind of mm. thing. When you, when you hear of, of how his father died so heartbroken, his sister who had to relocate and start life all over again, and I guess life cut short. He, he wanted to be something else. He wanted to be a surgeon. Well, I, you know, he was a very young man. Uh, he was a young man whose dreams were crushed. But at the same time, I think he was was a young man who dreamed of something better. And although he didn't live to see it, you know, he contributed to that new country we got. But I, I think there the thing about being a man of the people is very important. He also understood things can't just be changed by individuals. It's necessary to organize ordinary people, you know, factory workers, the unemployed, people, you know, wake waitrons, people in supermarkets, ordinary people to actually stand together. I mean, the old apartheid state understood very clearly divide and rule. And I think people like him understood collective, democratic mass movements are really what move history forward in a good direction. Lucen Vandervelde, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. He's a professor of economic and industrial sociology, and uh, he's also a director of the Neil Agate Study Unit, and that's at Rhodes University, and that will be available as a podcast. And we're just taking a leaf out of uh, lots of history around a man who, as you know right now, there is a, an inquiry uh, that's underway, but I just thought it's important for us to to give a little bit of context. We may not, we may not be able to do it you know, all his life, you know, we may not be able to do that justice, but I think we can just do a little dipstick into who Neil Agate was and and what a life he led. And I suppose the difficulty being what a life he could have left, he could have led, which which we, we obviously denied him as a country. 20 minutes after two.